You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Friday, February 3rd, 2023 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, the U.S. COVID-19 public health emergency ends in May. Here's what will change from time. And the CDC warns that a brand of eye drops may be linked to serious drug-resistant infection from NBC News. Plus, eye pressure-sending contact lens monitors and manages glaucoma from New Atlas. And more, time permitting. Here's our first report. The U.S. COVID-19 public health emergency ends in May. Here's what will change. The decision could affect tests, treatments, vaccines, and hospital care, and who pays for them. By Alice Park, from Time. Almost since the emergence of COVID-19, the U.S. has treated the disease as both a national and public health emergency. That will end on May 11, 2023, the Biden administration has announced. The decision to end these important designations will have wide-ranging impacts on many health measures that Americans have come to take for granted over the past few years, including free vaccines, booster shots, tests, and treatments. Declaring COVID-19 a public health emergency, or PHE, in January 2020 allowed the federal government, via a COVID-19 response led by the Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS, to access funds and resources to pay for everything from personal protective equipment, such as masks, to tests and vaccines, and respond in other ways to the pandemic. Under the PHE, the government could also modify Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement policies to increase access to treatments and other resources critical to controlling the spread of COVID-19. Two months later, former President Trump declared a national emergency surrounding COVID-19, which opened up additional funding for the response, including continued coverage for people under Medicaid and expanded funds for hospitals to care for COVID-19 patients. The declarations allowed a public health approach to health care during the pandemic, says Dr. Josh Sharfstein, Vice Dean for Public Health Practice and Community Engagement at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. They helped a lot of people to get services. Now we're going back to a health care approach to health care, and that brings all of the weaknesses of our system into play, he says. Sharfstein notes that when the emergency declarations end, more than just access to COVID-19 services will be affected. The funding made available through the declarations made it possible to continue covering millions of people under Medicaid, even if their eligibility had changed. The Kaiser Family Foundation, or KFF, estimates that anywhere from 5 to 14 million people could lose Medicaid coverage if states deem they are no longer eligible when this provision ends. The majority of them are expected to be Black and Latino people, so there are concerns that health inequities will worsen, says Dr. Jose Figueroa, Assistant Professor of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Here's what else will change when the national and public health emergencies end in May. COVID-19 vaccines. 
COVID-19 vaccines and boosters will continue to be covered for people with private insurance when given by in-network providers. But according to an analysis by KFF, people may have to pay out-of-pocket if they get their shots from providers outside of their covered network. People with Medicare will continue to receive free vaccines, which are covered under Medicare Part B through the CARES Act, a $2.2 trillion economic stimulus bill passed by Congress in 2020. Medicaid beneficiaries will also continue to receive free vaccines. Uninsured people will no longer be able to access free vaccines through state Medicaid programs, which had received expanded federal funding to cover these services for the uninsured. COVID-19 tests. Currently, people with private insurance or Medicare can order up to eight rapid at-home tests a month and get reimbursed for their cost. After the PHE ends, insurers may continue to cover COVID-19 tests, including the -the over-the-counter, at-home kind, but only if they are distributed by a narrower pool of in-network providers. Medicare beneficiaries will also have to start paying for a portion of any tests. Medicaid will continue to pay for COVID-19 tests that are ordered by a doctor, but each state will decide whether to cover at-home tests. COVID-19 Treatments Privately insured people will continue to receive coverage for COVID-19 treatments, including widely used antiviral therapies like Paxlovid. People with Medicare Part D will be covered for antiviral treatments until the federal supply is depleted. After those doses are gone, beneficiaries will have to pay for a portion of this drug treatment. Medicaid will reimburse only for treatments that are approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, or FDA. Whether medications that are under an emergency use authorization from the FDA are covered will vary from state to state. Emergency Use Authorizations, or EUAs. The dual emergencies aren't the only ones in place to respond to COVID-19. The HHS secretary also granted EUA power to the FDA to streamline availability of new COVID-19 drugs. The end of the dual emergencies does not affect the EUAs that the FDA granted to some COVID-19 vaccines and antiviral drugs like Paxlovid. The emergency declaration behind the EUAs is issued by the HHS secretary and remains in effect until the secretary decides to terminate it. If the emergency EUA declaration ends, then any medications authorized under it may no longer be available. The drugs would have to receive full FDA approval in order to make it to market again. In a statement, the FDA says that if that occurs, it would allow enough time for the transition to ensure that approval of the drugs are forthcoming. Telehealth. Most Medicare coverage of telehealth services that were expanded and allowed during the pandemic will end when the PHE concludes, according to Kaiser Family Foundation. The only exceptions are permanent changes for beneficiaries seeking mental health and substance use help. For these services, providers from another state can treat patients in different states, and audio-only services are also permanently covered. For Medicaid recipients, services and coverage will vary state by state. Hospital care. 
The 20% increase in Medicare reimbursements that hospitals received for COVID-19 patients will end with the expiration of the PHE. This may indirectly affect patients hospitalized for COVID-19 who may see higher costs reflected in their medical bills. With people having to pay for COVID-19-related health services, the virus could find new opportunities to spread and potentially even morph into more disease-causing variants. It means there will be less testing in this country and likely less treatment because not everyone can afford it, says Figueroa. Will this change the trajectory of the pandemic? It's something we are going to have to watch, Figueroa says. Up next, CDC warns that a brand of eye drops may be linked to serious drug-resistant infections. Stop using EsriCare artificial tears, the CDC warned, after one person died and other people were blinded after they used the over-the-counter product by Erica Edwards from NBC News. One person has died and at least three other people have permanent vision loss because of a bacterial infection possibly linked to a brand of over-the-counter eye drops, said the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which urged consumers this week to stop using EsriCare artificial tears while it investigates the outbreak. A majority of those affected reported using preservative-free EsriCare artificial tears before they became ill, said Maroya Spalding-Walters, head of the CDC's antimicrobial resistance team. So far, the CDC has identified at least 55 people in 12 states with Pseudomonas aeruginosa, a type of bacterium resistant to most antibiotics. Cases have been reported in California, Colorado, Connecticut, Florida, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, Nevada, Texas, Utah, Washington, and Wisconsin. Three-quarters of the patients said they'd used artificial tears before they developed infections. Of those who were able to recall brand names, 85% said they'd used preservative-free EsriCare artificial tears, Walters said. The CDC first alerted the public to the potential danger in a statement dated January 20th. While the infections have not been definitively traced to the eye drops, the CDC is working with the Food and Drug Administration and state and local health officials to investigate. To my knowledge, this is the first time that these highly resistant organisms have been linked to a contaminated product, Walters said. 11 developed eye infections, at least three of whom were blinded in one eye. Others had respiratory infections or urinary tract infections. One person died when the bacterium entered the bloodstream. It is unclear whether the affected patients had underlying eye conditions that would have made them more susceptible, such as glaucoma or cataracts. Pseudomonas aeruginosa bacteria are commonly found in water and soil and even on the hands of otherwise healthy people. Infections usually occur in hospital settings among people with weakened immune systems. Such bacteria are often resistant to standard antibiotics. That's what's so concerning, said Dr. Jill Weatherhead, an assistant professor of tropical medicine and infectious diseases at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. Our standard treatments are no longer available to treat the infection, she said. The drops under investigation are labeled as preservative-free. That means there's nothing in the product to prevent microbiological growth, Walter said.
The product could be contaminated during the manufacturing process or when the person with the bacteria on his or her skin opens the container. The CDC found the bacteria in bottles of the eye drops and is testing to see whether it matches the strain found in patients. Symptoms of eye infection. According to the CDC, people who have used the eye drops should seek medical care if they have symptoms, including yellow, green, or clear discharge from the eye, eye pain or discomfort, redness of the eye or eyelid, feeling of something in your eye, a foreign body sensation, increased sensitivity to light, blurry vision. As of this week, EsriCare artificial tears had not been recalled. They had been sold on Amazon and at stores like Walmart. Up next, eye pressure sensing contact lens both monitors and manages glaucoma by Ben Coxworth from New Atlas. If people with glaucoma don't stay on top of their condition, blindness may result. An experimental new contact lens is designed to help by both monitoring glaucoma symptoms and automatically releasing medication as needed. Glaucoma typically occurs when a blockage in the eye's drainage channels causes aqueous humor fluid to accumulate within the eye faster than it can drain out. This increases intraocular pressure, or IOP, which may in turn damage the optic nerve, causing blindness. Fortunately, there are eyedrop medications that help reduce IOP, although they work best if the dosage is continuously monitored based on the current amount of pressure in the eye. That's where the new contact lens comes in. Created by scientists at South Korea's Pohang University of Science and Technology, the wirelessly powered device incorporates an IOP sensor made of hollow gold nanowires, along with a medication-filled drug delivery system and an integrated circuit chip. The latter monitors IOP levels via the sensor and responds to any changes by triggering the delivery system to increase or decrease its dosage accordingly. In tests performed on rabbits, the contact lens was found to be highly effective at managing the dosage of the glaucoma treatment drug Timolol based on changes in the animal's IOP. The lens also exhibited excellent chemical stability and biocompatibility. Additionally, the scientists believe that its feedback system could be incorporated into other types of wearables for the management of other conditions. A paper on the research, which was led by Professor Sai Kwang Han and Dr. Tae Yang Kim, was recently published in the journal Nature Communications. Han previously led the development of another type of contact lens intended to prevent blindness in diabetics. And while we have seen experimental timolol-releasing contact lenses before, most have been designed to gradually release the drug over time at a consistent rate, not at a varying rate in response to changes in IOP. Up next, the five best ways to control high cholesterol according to people with the condition. Here's what people with high cholesterol have found works best for them. By Elizabeth Millard from Time. There are a variety of factors that influence cardiovascular risk, but cholesterol is one of the first things that doctors pay attention to. 
Having high levels of low-density lipoprotein, or LDL, cholesterol is definitely a variable we try to manage because it's been shown to be problematic for heart health, says Dr. Adriana Quinones Camacho, a cardiologist at NYU Langone Health. Though it's often called the bad kind of cholesterol, LDL cholesterol makes up most of your body's cholesterol stores. That means it's not a villain on its own, but when levels start creeping up, excess LDL can contribute to plaque formation in your arteries. Known as atherosclerosis, this condition increases the risk of heart attack and stroke. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention notes that about 93 million American adults have high cholesterol, which represents about 36% of the U.S. adult population. High cholesterol is sometimes treated with medications like statins, depending on factors such as age and family history. But lifestyle changes tend to be the first treatment, Quinones Camacho says. That's especially true if someone is younger than 45 and has fewer risk factors overall. Taking steps to keep cholesterol in check is crucial not just for heart function, but for overall health. Here, six people who have been diagnosed with high cholesterol share the strategies that help them manage it most effectively. Choose your fats wisely. Likely due to genetic factors, Brian Jones, age 32, who lives in Edmonton, Canada, has always had high cholesterol, and he finds that watching his fat intake helps keep his numbers controlled. That doesn't mean cutting out all types of fat, however. Research indicates that this macronutrient plays a role in regulating appetite, helping you feel full, absorbing certain types of vitamins, and storing energy in the body. But the type of fat you choose matters. Consuming a lot of foods high in saturated and trans fats may make you more likely to develop high cholesterol. So I eat less of those, Jones says. That includes fried foods and fatty meats, for example. Instead, he focuses on foods with omega-3 fatty acids like walnuts, salmon, flax seeds, and mackerel. When he cooks, he opts to use olive oil or avocado oil. The benefits of omega-3s on cardiovascular disease have been studied extensively. And research in the journal Nutrients finds that part of the effect comes from improving cholesterol numbers. Making choices like these is important, Jones says. These might seem minor, but they add up to healthier food decisions every day, and that's huge for helping me manage my high cholesterol, he says. Focus on less sugar and more fiber. In addition to selecting healthy fats, emphasizing more fiber in your diet can be a boon if you have high cholesterol. That often means choosing more fruits, vegetables, and whole grains, which has been helpful for Mark Joseph, a 32-year-old Missouri resident. When he was first diagnosed with high cholesterol a few years ago, he knew it was time to shift his lifestyle, and that began with major changes in how he was eating. Joseph cut way back on fried food, alcohol, and sugar, which have all been shown to affect heart health in negative ways. For example, research from Boston University found drinking just 12 ounces of a sugary beverage daily is linked to higher levels of LDL cholesterol. Another study published in Progress in Cardiovascular Diseases noted that consumption of added sugars like high fructose corn syrup increases the risk of high cholesterol and coronary heart disease. 
Joseph now tracks his daily fiber intake and concentrates on getting sufficient amounts from food sources rather than supplements. In part, that's because he's discovered a breadth of delicious options. Steel-cut oats and fresh fruit for breakfast, steamed vegetables and a lean protein like chicken for lunch, and a side of whole grains like quinoa for dinner. The more healthy choices Joseph adds, the less he misses his old favorites. Another benefit to eating more fiber is that it makes me feel full, so I don't crave snacks as much, he says. That's in addition to lowering my LDL cholesterol, he says. One of the reasons fiber is so beneficial is that it reduces the absorption of cholesterol into your bloodstream. Just 5 to 10 grams a day, which isn't much considering one serving of oatmeal has 4 grams of fiber, can lead to significant improvements for those with high cholesterol. If you've always had a sweet tooth, consider making fiber-rich fruits into a treat. That's the tactic 52-year-old San Francisco resident Lucia Chang used to knock out her own dessert cravings. Specifically, she's embraced eating all types of berries as well as bananas, and her total cholesterol levels have dropped by 17% over the past year, with no other changes to her diet. I'm thrilled by how easy this was and what a big difference such a small shift could make, she says. Now, a bowl of berries is a precious treat, and I don't feel deprived, she says. Make time to exercise. When 27-year-old Florida resident Jesse Fetter was diagnosed with high cholesterol seven years ago, he wasn't surprised since it runs in his family. But he didn't anticipate how much working out consistently would help improve his numbers. I'd tried dietary changes like avoiding shrimp and eggs since they have high cholesterol, but that didn't do anything, he says. In fact, when I ate them regularly, my numbers were exactly the same. What did help was exercising several times per week, he says. Research backs up that result. A study in sports medicine found that any type of movement, including resistance training and aerobic exercise, can have a beneficial effect on cholesterol. The results were so significant that the researchers suggested clinicians encourage as much physical activity as possible for people with high cholesterol and other heart health risks, such as high blood pressure. For Fetter, the effects of fitness weren't just personal, they drove his choice of profession as well. Because he saw so many benefits when he began working out, including better mood, improved body composition, and consistent energy, he became a strength and conditioning coach. Exercise has really helped me maintain a borderline high cholesterol level without needing to take medication, he says. Although he concentrates on structured exercise sessions several times per week, that doesn't mean everyone needs to follow the same routine to see benefits. For example, Ava Collins, who's 25 and lives in Adelaide, Australia, started with just 10-minute bursts of activity as a way to manage high cholesterol. Sometimes that meant a walk after dinner, other times spending time gardening. She gradually increased the intensity and duration of her movement and now logs about two to three hours of exercise per week. One of the keys to fitness success, Collins says, is figuring out which workouts you enjoy most. If you can find a workout buddy, that's even better because it helps you stay on track and you have a social component, she adds. Collins has also enjoyed the stress relief that's associated with exercise, whether it's gentle movement like yoga or a more vigorous dance workout. Stress can cause your cholesterol to skyrocket, she says. 
For example, a study in the journal Medicine found that psychological stress increased risk of high cholesterol, but that physical activity could mitigate that risk. Quit smoking. At just 28 years old, Texas-based Matt Kerr was shocked to find out he had high cholesterol and, even more alarmingly, an artery blockage. That's when he learned that his daily smoking habit, started when he was a teenager, could be a contributing factor. Kerr knew the addiction was bad for his lungs, but the degree of potential heart impacts was new to him, and he realized that if he didn't ditch the cigarettes, his medications might not work as well as they should. I learned that smoking impairs your blood vessels, accelerates artery hardening, and significantly raises risk for heart disease, he says. Those effects don't take decades to develop either, he says. Smoking makes LDA cholesterol stickier, so it's more likely to cling to artery walls and cause problems. According to the American Heart Association, when smoking and high cholesterol are combined, your risk of heart attack is dramatically increased. Research published in American Heart Journal found that even when participants gained weight from smoking cessation, their cholesterol numbers improved. Most notably, they had more HDL cholesterol, or high-density lipoprotein, the good kind, which helped their total cholesterol balance overall. Take medication as directed. Although lifestyle changes like diet and exercise can be powerful and in some cases delay the need for medication, that doesn't mean cholesterol-lowering drugs should be avoided if they're recommended by your healthcare team. There's an array of medication options now available, and having a conversation with your doctor can help you pinpoint which one might be a good fit, says Quinones Camacho. The good news about drugs like statins is that there are multiple choices, so if one isn't working for you, there's often another one that will work better, she adds. Although high cholesterol is seen as a risk overall, the fact is that every person is different and how you approach your health will be unique, she says. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.